Yeah, I think it was just about hustle. Um, finding some other engineers, it's one thing to sort of like pitch an idea, and it's another thing to show an idea. So I remember we put together this demo of what uh, Google Finance could look like, and at least stock quotes as sort of a real-time search result. And I remember um, we shared it with some of the founders, and they were like, eh, like, that's interesting, but not such a big deal. And then, um, and then I was really disappointed. I thought, like, this is obvious. This would be so amazing on Google. Katie Jacobs Stanton knows how to create her own options. Stanton, a veteran of Twitter, Google, Yahoo, and a presidential administration, now serves as chief marketing officer of genetic testing startup Color Genomics. Her professional journey from East Coast to West and back and forth again has given her rare insight into the workplace cultures that shape us today. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. And once you've done that, tell a friend. These talks are definitely conversation starters. I sat down with Stanton for the Fort Knox podcast to talk about the environment for women in tech and her journey to the executive ranks of Silicon Valley. Here's Katie Jacob Stanton. Explain what Color's mission is, because it seems like at this time a lot of people are getting into figuring out their genetic makeup, what that means for them. I was just in a Facebook conversation with a group of friends. Uh, one of them had just gotten a genetic test and was finding out all the stuff about her background that she didn't know. But Color's mission is a bit more specific than the Ancestries or even the 23andMe's. That's right. Yeah, so the product has been out for almost two years, and our goal is to democratize access to genetic testing. And, um, and access to genetic testing has been very difficult um, uh, over the past couple of years. So, for example, you know, 10 years ago it cost you know, a million dollars, and then it went down to hundreds of thousands and then tens of thousands. And even today, many tests, many genetic tests, cost in the thousands of dollars. There's a lot of friction, both economic and even um, uh, use and access. And so what our founders try to do is how can we simplify and how can we offer um, a clinical grade, affordable test that, um, that people can act on. So we started with cancer, looking at um, one of the most, like, the leading cause, one of the leading causes of death, something that hits all of us. Mm -hmm. um, one out of three people in their lifetime will hear the words, you have cancer. One out of seven men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. One out of eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. And so we thought about what can we do to help people um, better understand their genetic makeup, understand their genes, and understand if they are at an increased risk of developing any of these common hereditary cancers. That seems like a marketing challenge, though, because, I mean, in Silicon Valley, uh, I mean, I lived there for a while. There are a lot of geeky people who, who sort of want to know this stuff and get into it. But, you know, your average person, it's sort of like that question, do you know, do you want to know the day and time when you're going to die? Sometimes people kind of shy away from that information. So, so how do you make it where people feel like it's something they have some agency over? Yeah, you know, I, I, I do think for some people it can feel scary. Like, would I really want to know if I'm at a higher risk? But I think what we found is that there are a lot of people who do want to know. They have seen uh, cancer hit their family. I've seen it in my own family and wonder, you know, is there, is this an environmental issue? Is this, you know, a, um, a lifestyle issue? Is this something that I'm genetically predisposed to? And the deal, like, the situation is you have that risk whether, you know, you unlock it or not. So it's already there. Um, so once you want to know and, and, and do something about it if you are. So for example, 
Um, if you have a mutation in BRCA1 or 2, your risk of developing breast cancer goes from roughly 10 to 12 percent to 80 percent. And that means that you can actually do something to help outsmart cancer. So, for example, you go to your doctor instead of waiting to your 40 to get a mammogram, mm. you could have mammograms a little bit earlier, perhaps more frequently. Um, and so that allows you to personalize your health care. So, um, what I've seen, I've joined the company about five months ago. I'm an early investor in the company. And what I've seen talking to our customers um, who have come in that this has been really empowering um, and, and, and not scary. It's something that has empowered them, um, personalize their healthcare, but also for their family. Hmm. Because if you carry this mutation, um, there's a 50% risk um, or likelihood, rather, that your first-degree family members may also carry that mutation too. So it's something that you can share with them, something you can do as a family. So one of the reasons, Katie, why I wanted to sit down with you is your, your breadth of experience. Um, you grew up on the East Coast, now you live on the West Coast. You've been at Yahoo, at Google, uh, at Twitter, now at Color, in between did some work in Washington, D.C. So I, I think you've got really unique insight into some of the tensions that are going through our, our culture right now. So tell me about what the change was like for you going from web 1.0 to 2.0 into now technology sort of infusing parts of our life where it couldn't reach before. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I was working in New York um, at a bank um, in my 20s and um, you know it was interesting but it wasn't really where my heart was and, um, and I kept you know, looking at these websites and I looked at AOL and I looked at Yahoo and I remember doing a, a search on Yahoo thinking would it be so cool to work at a company like Yahoo? It looks so fun and interesting. And um, and they had just launched uh, Yahoo Finance. I thought, well, maybe I could come and bring my financial background to you know, a company like Yahoo. I don't know anybody in California, but I kind of found my way there and um, interviewed and, and joined. And, and it was the How first, old were you? I was, uh, oh, don't age me, but. Um, <laughs> we won't I, say what the year was, yeah. <laughs> I was in my late 20s, I think I was 29. Okay. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I joined Yahoo and also I was like, I love this. Like you, you can actually love your job. I didn't think it was possible. I loved the people that I was working with. I loved the product and making financial information more accessible to people. And you know, on you know, here on Wall Street, like only if you had a Bloomberg um, would you actually have access to such in-depth information. And so, kind of cracking that open and allowing anybody, any you know, investor to be able to access this information was really like empowering. And so, um, when I was at Yahoo, just seeing like you know the the you know. The, a company that was so, you know, um, innovative, um, and people that were great, and a mission that was so purposeful, and it kind of put me on this path. And um, and from Yahoo, and just seeing, you know, how this industry keeps, you know, reinventing itself and and developing and moving things forward at a lightning, you know, speed <laughs> is really thrilling. So I feel very fortunate to have found this path. Two thousand three, I think it was. You left Yahoo, went to Google. Mm -hmm. Google's still pretty brand new at that point, but also had a lot of press, a lot of momentum, a lot of people had the sense that it was eating Yahoo's lunch. How did you make that move? Was it connections that you had? Uh, how confident did you feel about it? Well, I actually left Yahoo because I had three kids within a year and a half. And wow. <laughs> how does, twins? Yes. Okay. Uh, so I had a, my daughter um, in 2000, or 2000 went back to work, and then I had twins a year and a half later. So in, in 2002, um, went back to work again and realized. Now, was, was all that on purpose or like the twins was, 
was that a big surprise? Often it's a surprise. Yeah, well, funny enough, twins run in my family. My okay. grandmother had five sets of twins. My mother was part of a set of twins, and she had four sets of twins in a row, then a single, then oh. hit another double. So you must have been surprised the first time when you didn't well, have twins. Well, but I, I went through fertility treatment, so okay. I ended up like, so it's a surprise, not a surprise. Gotcha. And, um, and so, uh, so I had my three kids and realized, like, this was really hard as a working mother. Um, you know, mathematically, it didn't even make sense with three kids in daycare and my salary at the time. And I was like, you know what, I'll take some time off. So I took time off, and I kept thinking, what could possibly be better than Yahoo? I love this company. I love this product. And um, what could possibly be better? And then I thought, well, Google seems really interesting, and they seem to um, be really focused on a number of different items around search. And um, I didn't have any connections there. I didn't know anybody. I applied online. Um, wow. I did my um, my first phone screen, hiding in a closet, I think, pumping. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> my twins were sleeping, and my other one was probably drawing on the wall. And um, But, you know, made it in. And what was interesting, when I interviewed at Google, um, I interviewed with a woman named Joan Braddye, who was one of the VPs of sales. And... Um, and throughout my course of Google in six years, I only had female bosses. I had Joan Braddye, I worked for Susan Wojcicki, Marissa Mayer, and then Megan Smith. So um, as a working mother, it was um, really, it, it was one of the main ways I was able to, you know, raise my kids without destroying the house at home, but also <laughs> having a really good um, career. That, that, that's interesting because I, I believe Sheryl Sandberg, who was also at Google mm -hmm. around that time period, has said that. Google wasn't exactly enlightened from the beginning about uh, how to be a friendly workplace for, for working women. I think she tells a story about saying to Larry and Sergey, hey, you know, like the walk as a expectant mother from the parking lot to the building is pretty far. Maybe we should have special parking spaces outlined. Yeah. Did, did you experience a change even in, in how you saw Google operating over the period of your being there? Um. Not really. Cheryl's totally right. We were at Google at the same time. You know, it definitely wasn't sort of like a female-friendly place, but I was just very lucky um, to have had such awesome female role models who mm. understood, you know, the demands of being a working mother um, at the time. So Susan had kids the same age, and she ended up now has five children. Um, <laughs> I stopped at three <laughs> once I was outnumbered, um, and um, and. And Marissa, for example, Marissa works so much and she would work really late at night and I would go home and put my kids to bed and then either dial in or come back for our meetings at like 10 p.m. So, um, you know, it, the very long hours, but also some flexibility to be able to get the job done. I think you mentioned Yahoo Finance is one of the things that attracted you there. You had a role in Google Finance also, yeah. which I remember. I remember when it came out, it was so different because it had some of those web 2.0 capabilities. You could really scroll the charts back and forth. It was fast. Uh, talk about your role at Google when you got there. What did you notice that was different maybe from Yahoo, companies that you had experienced before? Yeah, I think one of the biggest differences um, was that Google was and probably still remains a very engineering-driven company. Um, and when I was at Yahoo, I was hired as a product manager for Yahoo Finance and helped um, build the site and building it internationally. And so when I came to Google and applied to Google, naturally I thought, oh, I could be a product manager here. And Google said, no, I'm sorry, you don't have a computer science background. And I was like, but I just helped build like 
this great product on the <laughs> web and I've been there for three years and I was promoted and, and they're like, no, sorry, we have a hard and fast rule. You have to be an engineer by training. And I thought, oh, okay. So I pivoted and I worked on the sales um, partnerships team. I worked on uh, Google search. And then um, while I was there, I had found a couple of engineers and we pitched this idea of having real-time information on Google search, including stat quotes. And, um, and that's when Susan gave me this opportunity to help build Google Finance within Google with engineers here in New York and, um, and many from India as well. And so, um, so that was my little bit of a break and a pivot. But I think that sort of engineering-driven culture is one of the biggest differences I saw. How did you figure that out? Because it sounds like, though you weren't technically a product manager, you managed to help launch a product which is what you were passionate about, in a culture that wasn't friendly to letting you do that on your own. Yeah, I think it was just about hustle. Um, finding some other engineers, it's one thing to sort of like pitch an idea, and it's another thing to show an idea. So I remember we put together this demo of what uh, Google Finance could look like, and at least stock quotes as sort of a real-time search result. And I remember um, we shared it with some of the founders, and they were like, eh, like, that's interesting, but not such a big deal. And then, um, and then I was really disappointed. I thought, like, this is obvious. This would be so amazing on Google. And, um, and then um, some of the engineers said, well, find us the real data, and we'll build it, and then we'll come back with a demo. So we did that, um, did some work with, um, with Comstock, and, um, and got the necessary trial licenses from New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Came back with a demo, and they're like, why haven't you launched this yet? This is a great <laughs> idea. So, How did you get the engineers excited about it? Did they happen to be in the meeting or what? Just, you know, again, like hustle, finding like-minded people. There's such a great culture of innovation at Google. Like you have this 20% time to build something new. And that's sort of the origins of a lot of really interesting innovations. I think Google Maps came out of 20% time and a bunch of other new products. So, um, so I was really lucky finding all these awesome entrepreneurs like within the company that had so, so much talent and then leveraging some of the partnerships I had on the outside already. And um, yeah, it was fun to do and rebuild. Um, and and in, in fact, uh, a guy named Vivi Kostaki, who lives here in New York, he um, was uh, the brains behind the moving maps and making the maps, or sorry, the charts come to life very similar to Google Maps. Right. Uh, what, what would people say? What would you say? Often we don't like talking about ourselves in this way. Your superpower is. I mean, you, your background is in engineering, but it sounds like you're gathering people together, you're pushing an idea, you're getting people excited. Feels weird to talk about a superpower, but um, <laughs> I mean, I think um, for me, like I've thrived off of building teams um, and bringing people together, you know, like-minded or, you know, different opinion-minded, but with a similar goal of building something that's really new. Um, and I think that's something that I'm really proud of from, you know, Google to Twitter to here at Color. Um, bringing just smart, motivated, passionate, determined people together. So Twitter, um, you were there until pretty recently. How does the culture of Twitter differ from the other Silicon Valley cultures you've been a part of? I was at Twitter for six years and left about a year ago, and it was also amazing. It was a, a great role and opportunity on a platform that you know I continue to believe in, and. Um, and I think the, there are a couple of maybe different cultural differences. Um, when I joined uh, Twitter, um, actually a few weeks after I joined, um, Dick Costello became the CEO. Mm -hmm. and, um, and Dick is one of the smartest and funniest persons I've ever known. Um, he was a former stand-up comic. Yeah. And, um, and so there was this culture of funny. Um, at the company, and um, and much funnier than maybe say Google. Google was very yeah, serious. But, yeah, and, yeah. Google hasn't had a lot of really funny CEOs that I can 
I mean, Sundar's great. Right, um, but not a lot of funny CEOs. Yeah, there are not, I mean, I think across industry, right, there aren't that many funny CEOs, but Dick is. I mean, yeah. he is just like, and so I think, you know, he brought so much sort of levity to the company. I mean, seriousness, too, about building this important company, but um, but I think you would find that even in emails, people would just like, emails would take a funny turn and there would be a gif war here and there. And so um, so I, I, we saw a lot of that. And, and also, I think, also very, um, a scrappier kind of culture, too. It wasn't as like, do you have a PhD in bioinformatics or like, you know, in computer science, um, you know, from these ages? I think it was a lot more open-minded about where the engineers had come from and the product managers as well. About how many people were there when you joined? Um, probably 150 or so. So way different scale than even Google was at that time. And coming in, you had more of a space to, to help shape the culture, I imagine. I think so, a little bit, yeah. When I joined Twitter, um, part of my role was figuring out our international markets and our strategy. And we had so much, so much of our user base outside the U.S., but we didn't have any employees outside the U.S. We didn't have any entities. We didn't have any partners. We didn't have any revenue coming from outside the U.S. So it was a real, you know, honor and thrill to be able to kind of plant the Twitter flag in a bunch of these international markets over time. How'd you do it? Lots of travel. Lots of travel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of pages, extra pages in my passport to this day. <laughs> what kind of a boss are you? Um, I'm a compassionate um, manager, hopefully a clear manager. Um, I hire people way smarter than me, which I think is part of the secret of good management, um, people who fill in my blind spots. Um, and it was really, you know, even to last night, I ran into a, a bunch of my old teammates and people that I hired um, from our uh, media team here in the U.S. So it's, we all stay connected, and, and I'm very much in touch with many of the people I've hired at Twitter. Um, Brian Krasanich uh, told me a few weeks ago that he's fired more people for being difficult to work with than for being dumb. Hmm. Does that ring true? You know, sadly, I think like many people, I've had to leave, uh, let people go. Um, and more that it was usually for performance issues as opposed to not being smart. Usually people like, you know, smart people will get hired into roles, but often either they're um, unable to pivot, unable to grow. Um, in some cases, they may be difficult to work with, but usually everyone I've had to let go have been for performance reasons. Um, so more being unable to change as quickly as a company needed to change. Yeah. And sometimes, too, it's about scale. You know, you especially at these companies that grow really fast, you need people that can scale with the organization and grow and adapt to changes. Um, there's no sort of blueprint for a lot of these, you know, especially tech companies that are trying to innovate. And at Twitter, it felt like you were building this rocket ship, like, as it was up in the air. And you're like, wait, someone forgot a window. <laughs> Speaking of changes, Washington, D.C. is going through uh, a few changes right now. A little bit. You spent some time in Washington uh, helping the Obama administration do outreach through technology. How did you get involved with that? Um, while I was at Google, in our 20% time, we built this elections team. And the idea was, how can we tap into all these great um, technologies at Google, from Google Docs to Google Maps, um, and help the different campaigns connect with citizens? And um, while we're doing this, and this was apolitical and you know, with both parties, um, on a personal side, I had been volunteering on the Obama campaign and became just really inspired by what that campaign stood for. And um, and and funny enough, I was interviewing at Twitter um, uh, during that time too. So um, and Twitter was maybe 25 people. 
And um, when President Obama won, and we're all really excited, and I was thinking about what might be next for me, um, I got a call to work in the White House. And I thought, oh my gosh, this fork in the road. Do I go to the White House, or do I join the startup called Twitter? And I thought, well, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I have to do this. And so I um, commuted for 15 weeks straight from San Francisco to D.C., which I would not recommend to anybody. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I achieved like 10 years off my life. Wow, um, 15 weeks. 15 weeks. So Where did commute. you live? I didn't. I was essentially Just homeless. Um, so I would crash at friends' houses. My cousin was in medical school in, um, in Virginia, so I would stay there. And um, and so I'd take the red eye from Sunday, Monday, and come back on the weekends. And, and then we moved with my family um, uh, over the summer. So that was rough. But it was a thrill and honor of a lifetime to be able to have that opportunity and experience. Government is different from business. Um, people talk about that in ways positive and negative. Moving from Silicon Valley with its fast-paced demands, things changing by, uh, you know, forced by competition to, to DC, was that jarring? It was, um, going from this, yes, we can movement to like, no, you can't. <laughs> you know, it was very, very different going from, you know, this Google culture of like, open information and here's the data and also a very like meritocratic culture too, right? People were there because they had earned it, you know, and were growing and um, to a very political and charged and, um, and you know, bureaucratic culture. And, um, and, I, and I grew a lot of empathy um, for government, understanding like there are a lot of rules in there for a reason and sometimes people get stuck, but there are solutions to some of these problems and finding the helpers. Was it all empathy or, or did you also get frustrated at why certain things can't change? I mean, I imagine it must have been some of both. Oh, for sure. <laughs> like, there are some things I was like, why is there no Wi-Fi? Like, you know, surely we can find secure Wi-Fi or why does it take so long to, you know, do anything? And at the time, very early on, we were just setting up White House on Twitter and Facebook and I was like, okay, we'll be done in an hour and it would take weeks because we had to think of all the laws that protect archived information and communication between the president and citizens and like, oh my God, this is taking forever. <laughs> and um, But I think for me, like knowing that I didn't want a job in government, I really wanted to serve and um, you know you're not there for the money you're not there for like a promotion you're just there for like the real work and hopefully the impact so I think that was really liberating it was the first time in my career that I just like it, you don't think about any of that stuff except for the actual like work um, which was it, it was refreshing when did you know that you were gonna leave DC <laughs> I, I think I went in there knowing I wasn't going to be there forever. Um, but what I didn't know was like how long and would my kids love it, would my husband love it. And, um, and so I worked for um, President Obama for the first year. Um, and then a friend of mine was at the State Department and he said, you know, um, would you like to bring some of like, you know, your, um, your skills and experiences to the State Department? I think you'd really like it. And I think you'd really enjoy getting to know Hillary Clinton better. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. And I always very early on, I always thought I wanted to be a diplomat or maybe an ambassador one day and studied international affairs and had lived abroad and thought like, maybe I would want to do foreign service and this would be my, like my gateway. And so I moved over to work for the secretary and, um, and that was incredible. We had a lot more leeway. I think in the department, you just have a lot more flexibility than you have in the White House. Sometimes too much. Sometimes too much. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we had done there. I think um, there are a lot of great people. I have a ton of respect for the foreign service officers I met there. I think it's one of the most like um, prestigious places um, for our um, 
for um, you know, people who are trying to advance our global interests. And um, but while I was there, that's when I think I knew with my between my kids and my husband and myself even that you know I don't know if I want to stay in government beyond this um, this assignment. And um, and kept thinking, well, what if I had gone to Twitter after all? And I really miss California. I really miss building things. And um, and so I sent an email to Dick and said, you know, is there any chance are you guys still hiring at Twitter? Would you have something for me? And he did. So we hmm. came back that summer. So um, trying to draw parallels here, technology played a big role in President Obama's uh, election in the first place. This whole idea that uh, the campaign had used online outreach, even, you know, burgeoning social media in ways that hadn't been done before. So new technology there. Old technology clearly played a role in Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton not winning the White House. Email, my goodness. From the perspective of someone who came up through Silicon Valley, what's your take on where technology is taking politics and the role that it plays? I mean, I think technology can be used for good and bad, <laughs> just like anything. And, um, and I think it will continue to play an important role um, in terms of how we communicate. Um, I think providing that sort of sunlight and transparency into communication, but also data. Um, one of the things that um, I was able to work on for President Obama was data.gov and how can we take all the data sets that um, the government has and make them, and they're paid for by taxpayers and by our citizens, like we should make them freely available back. Um, so entrepreneurs and engineers and product managers can be able to help us solve you know, problems. So I think it boils down to like, how can we use the tools of the 21st century like technology to solve the problems of the 21st century too. Is technology savvy becoming a prerequisite to public office? Or it seems like either you have to be really smart about it or you have to keep it the heck away from you, right? <laughs> like, like write handwritten notes yeah. uh, or know absolutely the intricacies of how your email and your social media are set up. Yeah, you have to be savvy in this day and age. Like you have to, you know, maybe not copy paste your passwords on your Twitter account. Like you have to, you know, know sort of best practices and um, you know how to be able to communicate with people. A little Spicer shout out there, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> We're all wondering what that odd string of characters was that Sean Spicer uh, tweeted the out. Secret code. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in the early days of, of the administration. So. Tell me about you. Where you're from, New York? I'm from Peekskill, New York. All right. Home of George Pataki and Pee Wee Herman. What and was Mel it Gibson like? Too. What was it like growing up in Peekskill? Um, it was it was fine. Like you know, it was very like simple. Um, you know, a simple town close to New York City at the time. Like New York was going through tough times, so we didn't come into the city that often. I remember um, I was living in New York in oh, the okay, late yeah. '70s, early '80s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So same period and. Um, yeah, my mom was a nurse. She didn't go to college, and the oldest of sixteen, as I mentioned. And um, oh wow, did you say sixteen? Sixteen. That completely flew by me. Yeah, five my, sets of twins. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, six singles, ten part of a package. Your grandmother must have been an amazing woman. She was awesome. She was awesome lady. Because after the the first couple of sets of twins, she knew 
right, what she was in for. Yeah, she was disappointed when like a singleton came out. <laughs> and so when she called me after I had my twins and she was like, how's it going? And I thought I was gonna die. And I was like, I can't complain to her. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's great, but I keep going, <laughs> not. <laughs> is the whole family still in that area, your extended family? Um, well, the family is so big, everyone's all over the place. Right, but, I guess, um, yeah. But my, uh, my mom passed away a while ago. My dad is oh. um, still in Peekskill and my brother's in Brooklyn. and. Literally, I have a family member like at every port, it seems, so like in California, New York, D.C. And you went to undergrad in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. How do you end up going to school in Memphis, living in New York? That seems That's what unusual. happens when you don't get into any of your top choices. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I didn't get into some of my top choices, and, um, and, uh, and, but I had gotten into Vanderbilt, and so I went to go look at Vanderbilt, and, um, and, uh, but it just didn't feel like the right fit for me at the time. And um, it's awesome school, but I was like, I don't know. And, um, and my dad was a banker and um, had um, done some work in Tennessee and said, you know, there's a school called Rhodes that uh, I know our bank had lent money to and um, why don't we go take a look? And, um, and so we drove there and, um, and I just fell in love with it. It was, it was, I think I needed something smaller and, uh, and everyone was so friendly, everyone was so nice, and I thought, well, I'll go here, and um, it, you know, it was a great choice. And then, um, and then for graduate school, I came back to New York and went to Columbia. Yeah, I went to a smaller school, too, DePauw in Greencastle, Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, how do you look at resumes differently based on your own experience in college? Because, again, I, recently I've talked to CEOs, you know, went to San Jose State and therefore are not impressed uh, by just Ivy League, it's more about what you know versus where you went. Yeah, some of the things I look for, especially you know, someone not coming from like a big branded school for undergrad, like I have that empathy for the smaller schools or the lesser named schools. So I look for hustle. I look for like good work ethic, something that I might see like out of the the path. Like people have done volunteer work, um, people have been promoted. Um, I look for people with international experience, something that I believe like strongly in. Uh, people who speak foreign languages, um, hmm. I think, have always stood out to me, and I've, I've looked for those things. Even if the role's not specifically international, you pick up on that? I do, um, because I think it just brings a different lens, um, and again, a different empathy, different perspective to things, um, especially somebody who has moved and immigrated to the U.S. Like, I think that takes, you know, a certain level of hustle and adaptivity. Um, I moved um, with, when I was at Twitter, I was able to work in France for a year, which was such a dream come true to be able to live in Paris and work and, and, and bring my kids, most importantly. And we threw them into French schools. They didn't speak any French at all. And I think for them, it has given them this lifetime understanding of what it's like to be different and not speak the local language and making friends. And so when they came back, I think they just approached other kids in their community and their schools differently and trying to be helpful to them. Did something in particular give you the courage to make all of the moves that you did, even physical moves, that clearly must have put some kind of strain on your family, your family relationships? You can't have known from the beginning exactly how your kids were going to take it. Yeah, it's funny. I think growing up in, you know, Peekskill, we didn't really travel that much. We didn't have that much money to go on vacations. Our big vacations were to Erie, Pennsylvania to see my grandparents and, and all of our big family. And, um, and my first time really abroad was um, in college where I studied abroad in Paris. And while I was there, I remember so vividly hearing on the radio, because we didn't have anything else really, um, <laughs> about the you know stuff happening in Berlin. It seemed like the Berlin Wall was gonna come down. I was like, oh my gosh, like 
I want to do that. And I'd already done some backpacking and my eyes were just like so wide open and did the overnight train, went to Berlin and, and oh, had so this, you I went. went. Yeah. Okay. And I had this, you know, this incredible front row seat to history and just seeing the walk him down and Peter Jennings and all these great people were there reporting and seeing families reunited on the platform. And I realized like, oh my gosh, this world is so like, so big and there's so much to see and inspired me to go abroad again. The next year I went to Jerusalem and studied in Israel for a year or a year or a semester. And, um, and I think for me, as I look back, realizing that all those moments where I kind of got out of my comfort zone and I traveled and I saw new things, like those are the things that made me a better person and, and made me a stronger person and things that I'll remember for the rest of my life. And um, you can always go back home. And, um, and so giving that opportunity to my kids has been really extraordinary. They travel a lot with me. I take them on business trips as often as I can. And they've seen a lot of the world. So it sounds like you had this um, horizon broadening experience in college, uh, going to Europe, going to Jerusalem, and then after school, you came back to New York, and it didn't fit. Was there a lesson? Was there a light bulb moment there? Why did you come back to New York in the first place? And New York is home, yeah. and I have to come back every quarter or so and kind of recharge okay. to get my New York fix and um, and eat a lot of pizza and, <laughs> <laughs> and see all my friends and stuff. So, I mean, New York is always home, and for me, you know, right now California is great. It's been an, a, a great professional opportunity for me. It's it's fulfilling emotionally and spiritually and intellectually, and my kids, it's their home too, but um, but New York has a very special place. I feel like between San Francisco, New York, and Paris, they feel different parts of, you know, of me. Mm. So spiritually, you, you spent time in Jerusalem. Was that more than an academic experience for you? I'm just picking up on that word. Yeah, so um, my dad's um, side of the family was Jewish, but I was raised Catholic, and my mom was Catholic, and um, and I had always wondered about that side of my family, my heritage, and I didn't know any of my relatives and thought this would be really interesting um, spiritually to understand that side. Um, but also, I was a political science major and didn't really understand you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and there's this amazing program that tried to showcase both sides. So um, we um, you know, worked on a kibbutz, and we also visited refugee camps in Gaza um, and tried to really understand um, the families and the people behind this conflict that's been going on for so long. So, um, so there was a spiritual side and also sort of a, a, an academic side. What did you learn seeing that up close that maybe informs the way you look at the tensions there today? It's hard. <laughs> it's very sad. It's very hard. Um, I don't think um, the plight of, you know, of the families who live there have been fairly portrayed um, in the media. I think, um, I mean, I think traveling to a lot of places, it gives you, again, that empathy of understanding how, um, you know, people are really seriously impacted and, um, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, the various parties find a, a solution. Right now, uh, technology is having this explosive effect on the media. Um, it seems like the first wave was like, oh, look at all the information that's out there. We can hear what's going on in different parts of the world. And now we're dealing with a bit of blowback from that, in that, well, how do we even know which of these supposed stories are real? What are facts versus just empty assertions versus manipulation? Where do we go from here? Do you see a potential path toward more clarity? Or are we maybe in for years and years of muddling through? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
There's a, there's this great quote, and I'm sure I'm going to mess it up, from Herb Simon, who's a, um, a social scientist, and something like the abundant or the wealth of information um, can create a poverty of attention. And, um, and arguably, we might have too much information coming at us, and it's hard for us to parse, and it's coming in so quickly, either text message or tweets or Facebook posts or whatever it may be. And, um, and we almost need sort of a pause and a reset, and what are the right credible sources, and how do we make sure we get the facts right? And, you know, it's pressure on you as a journalist and the entire industry yeah. of helping to, you know, help citizens be able to understand what's really true, what's really accurate, what are the right sources. And, you know, and this whole label of fake news, um, you know, it really is just like propaganda. Like we've had propaganda in our like news cycle forever. Um, so it's about how do we sort of minimize that type and um, of, of information from going out before bad things happen. You ever going to go back into government? Um, maybe. What'll determine? Um, I think I need to. Um, See how my kids do, making sure everyone gets off to college, okay, <laughs> and um, and then sort of uh, rethink it. But I mean, I think it's important to serve your country, and I want to serve in you know a different capacity and be able to do something. Maybe it's volunteer in a nonprofit, or maybe it's back in government at some point too. Ever run for office? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I think the whole. I don't. I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. Again, I, I think everyone should try to serve um, in the the capacity that they can, but it seems a little bit daunting. It does. And there, there are a lot of, you know, rumors that tend to spring up about various Silicon Valley and tech figures. Will they run? There was this latest one about Mark Zuckerberg. Is he about to? And I thought that one was frankly kind of silly but because there didn't seem to be enough there there. But certainly with Sheryl Sandberg, you know, various other people. I mean, do you think the Silicon Valley mindset is a good fit? For government work, I mean, you've kind of, at a level, done that that move we were talking about from Silicon Valley mm -hmm. to D.C. Saw the positives and negatives. I think so. I, I mean, I think what I've seen in Silicon Valley is that you know it's a culture of optimism that against all odds, of course you can build a platform that's going to be able to connect the entire planet to one another. <laughs> of course you can use your saliva to be able to outsmart cancer. Of course you can do all of these things, and I think. Um, it's going to take relentless optimism and hope um, and energy to be able to build new things and hopefully put them in a place that can be useful at scale, like at the U.S. government. Mm. What's your best advice for a 15-year-old Katie who wants to be her version of you when she grows up? Study computer science. <laughs> <laughs> I took it in college, and then I thought, well, this is stupid. What am I going to use this for? Like, this is a waste of time. I'm going to do something, like, really, really, like, important and, like, I don't know, study, like, Political basket science. weaving. I don't know, like, something, like, something that really wasn't as, and no offense to basket weavers, because I think basket weaving is cool. We need baskets, sure. But we yeah. totally need baskets. But, um, but yeah, I, I would tell 15-year-old Katie, really, like, stick in that computer science class and also um, improve your French <laughs> in Spanish. Um, because of the importance of the global perspective, or and, those two languages in particular? Uh, just because of um, the global perspective. Like for me, um, you know, just traveling a lot and um, going to France and Latin America, like I wish I had really worked on those languages personally earlier. Um, what about the kids who aren't good at computer science? What should they do? Even if you're not going to be good at it, 
it's another, it's a foreign language. And just to be able mm. to speak that language, to understand what the zeros and ones could possibly do and understanding what different types of languages are there. And it's just understanding how something is made, I think is important. So at least having that common understanding that you could be able to apply in whatever job you have, because all, all companies at this point are technology companies. You know, we all use technology in a different and variety of different ways. So, um, so it's important to have that baseline understanding. Particular challenges for girls in our culture in becoming fluent in computer science as a language? Um, you can't be what you can't see. And so, you know, I think for a lot of girls not, be, not seeing other female professors of computer science, um, you know, and other leaders in business, and we still have a lot of work to do um, for women in leadership positions and um, to stick it out. Know you're not alone. Um, know that there are other girls and other classes also taking this, but, um, but to really persevere and, and, and stick to it as much as you can. My thanks to Katie Jacob Stanton. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Now check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next on the podcast, Bracken Darrell is the CEO of Logitech, a company that has reinvented itself in the smartphone and cloud era. Funny thing about Darrell, though, he grew up in a region of Kentucky without a lot of business role models, and he got his start in a very non-tech arena. Go ahead and subscribe to the Fort Knox podcast now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. You don't want to miss that. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.